Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the Jayberg Wilk Learning Series. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. really saves me the need to introduce myself, so now you know who I am. Um, the only thing I would add is that, aside from the way I was kindly introduced, uh, in recent years I've been doing more and more travel work in Israel, and I've gotten to go more and more into Jerusalem, which over time started unveiling its complexity to me, which is the reason that I actually decided to do this talk and create this program because I felt that a lot of the things I became aware of gave me a different view of it. And I would say that maybe an alternative title to this talk wouldn't be the many layers of Jerusalem. It might be the many narratives of Jerusalem. And let me take you through this. Before I actually go and delve into the many, the many complexities that th this city has or have, have had over the years, I want to start with some more recent history. 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court rules that people born in Jerusalem would not be acknowledged as Israelis by the State Department. Why is that? For many, many years, it was the U.S.'s stand that Jerusalem has to be decided upon mutually by Israel and whatever other party that is, be it Jordan at first, later by the Palestinians. When Israel first announced Israel as its capital in 49, the U.S. did not acknowledge it. Later in, the, in 1950, Jordan actually thought of declaring Israel as its capital because it held Jerusalem, and this was not going to be acknowledged by the U.S. as well. Um, and it's been the stance ever since that the U.S. would acknowledge whatever decision would be made mutually by Israel and whatever other party that is. Later, after 67, and I'm going to go into all these dates, and, and uh, I'm, I'm sure most of you are familiar with them, but I will go into them in more detail. But in, after 67, when Israel took over Jerusalem and annexed it, and including East Jerusalem, the US still did not support this. And ever since, the embassy have been in Tel Aviv. Until two years ago, new guy, new policy. In, the, in December of 2017, Trump declares that he's going to move the Israeli, the, I'm sorry, the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, completely changing the American policy. Six months after, in Israel's Independence Day, for May 14, 2018, the embassy does move. Today we officially open the United States Embassy 
in Jerusalem. Congratulations. It's been a long time coming. Almost immediately after declaring statehood in 1948, Israel designated the city of Jerusalem as its capital. The capital the Jewish people established in ancient times. So important. All right. So I'm going to begin the first narrative. So we're talking about ancient times, then I'm going to be an ancient Jew. And for, for, first of all, I'd want to say, I don't know if when Trump says ancient times, he really knows what he's talking about. Coming from a country that, coming from a country where things that are 200 years old might be considered archaeology. When I speak about ancient, I'm talking thousands of years old, right? We are actually the reason that people even care about Jerusalem. We are the ones that first made Jerusalem what it is. So when I say ancient, I'm going to take you several thousands of years back. So Jerusalem has actually existed even before we came. And I said we're the ones that made it famous. It's true. But 2,500 2, years before we even arrived, Jerusalem has already been in existence. It was a Canaanite city, belongs to several, moved between several people of Canaan, ancient Israel, the last ones being the Jebusites. So when we came, the Jebusites have been in rule for 400 years, actually fortified the city, creating the first wall around the city, very impressive. And when you look at this sketch, it's impossible to relate this to what you see now, but I'll put you in place. So right now, this is what we're, we're going to refer to as Mount Moriah, and we'll go back to it. This is where today the old city is, right? So this is actually below the old city, which is now the neighborhood of Silwan. If you look from the old city, if you go out of the western wall, the, the neighborhood you see right in front of you, this is it. So this is the old Jebusite city. King David arrives there. You can see the timelines. This is timeline from the first establishment of Jerusalem, Jebusite times, or Canaanite times, till today. And this is just of the time period that I'm going to be referring to. And 2,500 years Jerusalem is in existence even before it comes to our attention. And then something else happens. A king called Saul does something great. First of all, he goes looking for donkeys, find kingdom. So he becomes the, the king of Israel. And the great thing that he does is that he unites the tribes of Israel. Now we have one united kingdom. And a kingdom needs a capital. So he is not the one to actually set his capital there. The one following him, probably our most important king of all times, David, is the one who's going to set Jerusalem as his capital. So David conquers the city at 1000 BCE, approximately. right? So he takes it over from the Canaanites, from the Jebusites. And there's, there are few, uh, several reasons why he did it there, why he decided to take Jerusalem. The first is that it was pretty much central to his kingdom. So it makes sense. 
More importantly, it was tribe neutral. It actually, because it belonged to the Jebusites, it didn't belong to any of the tribes. So this way, he's not be giving any preference to any of the tribes. Now, it is tribe neutral. However, it's very close to his hometown of Bethlehem and very close to his tribe of Judah. And another good thing about Jerusalem, it's high up. I told you it was already fortified, central, and there's water there. The Gihon Spring gives water to the city. So that way, it's actually possible to establish a city on the side of the mountain while still having running water. Now, so he's taking a fortified city that has water, that already has been a regional powerhouse, but another thing that he gets from this city is the name. So he inherits the city with the name of Yerushalem. Shalem, the sunset god, the Canaanite sunset god, the Jebusites, which are one of the Canaanite people, used to name their cities after their gods. So this is actually the city founded by Shalem. And what he does, he turns Yerushalem into Yerushalayim, which is going to be our theme for this talk. He takes it and makes it his own. All right? So now we have this city, and this is what we refer to as the origin of Jerusalem, not the old city. You saw the old city didn't even exist, what we now know as Jerusalem. If you ever go and visit Jerusalem, if you wanted to go and look for the original Jerusalem, David's Jerusalem, you would be directed to what is known today as the city of David. Now, the city of David is an archaeological dig at that place where I just told you about, which currently looks like this, and they've found some amazing findings there from the period of King David. It has not yet been established that King David actually lived there, or was his fort there, or was his palace there. However, there are strong evidence connecting Jews of the time to this place. So King David goes there and takes on the city, and he does another thing. He brands it after himself. He actually calls the city the city of David. Now, as we've said, this branding continues. Now this is called the city of David because we want to associate this place with him. And um, what he does, this is what it looks like. Remember I told you this is within the, the neighborhood of Silwan, which is the, the neighborhood you see around the excavation. So now he has a city. It's great for all the reasons I've just mentioned. It's named after him, but it's still lacking one thing. It's not holy. So what he does is that he brings the Ark of the Covenant. What's the Ark of the Covenant? A wooden chest that has the, the stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments are inscribed, given to Moses on Mount Sinai. So until then, it was placed in different places around the country to have it uh, safeguarded, safe kept. And what he does is that he brings the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem 
And now for the first time, Jerusalem is a holy city. Right? The city of David is a holy city. All right. So he brings the Ark of the Covenant. And he has all these rights to, to do what he does with the city, establishing a capital and so forth. But there's one thing that has been deprived of him. Leonard Cohen, a modern Jew, what does he sing about? Your faith was strong, but you needed proof. You saw her bathing on the roof. Who's that? That's Bathsheba. David's sin, one of his few sins, but his major sin was that he, sent Batsheva, he saw Bathsheba bathing on a roof, fell in love with her, sent her husband, Uriah the Hittite, send him to the front lines to be killed so he can marry his wife. And that was one of the reasons he was forbidden to do what his son could do. The wisest of all men, David's son, Solomon is the one that is given the right to build the first temple. So 40 years later, the Ark of the Covenant is moved from the city of David from this place to Mount Moriah. Placed there, and it is right up the hill, and the temple is built around it. Why Mount Moriah? What's Mount Moriah, let's say, according to the Bible and Jewish tradition? Anybody knows, rings a bell? Mount Moriah. So several things are associated with Mount Moriah. Anyone Ventures a guess? Yes. The Akita. That's right. Isaac's binding. Mount Moriah, number one. More importantly, Mount Moriah is considered where the top of the mountain is the foundation rock from which the world originates. That's the first place from which God created the earth. More so, this is where Noah made his sacrifices, and later on buried the skull of Adam, Adam and Eve, the first man. So this is Mount Moriah. This is why the Ark of the Covenant is placed there. This is why the temple is, been, is built on top of the mountain, and that's why Solomon creates it right there. Several years pass, the kingdom splits again. The Jews of Judea keep the temple. They're able to keep worshiping in this central location. However, the Jews of Israel, the second Jewish kingdom, have to start finding solutions. They no longer have the temple. This is when they actually start to find local solutions, how you can worship without a central temple, which will eventually transform into a synagogue. The Bible says that without the temple, the kingdom of Israel had troubles keeping the belief they followed idols, which is why the Assyrians came, and the vengeance of God was that the Assyrians took over the kingdom of Israel. The, the kingdom of Judea kept their faith and were spared. So they were still 
independence when the Assyrians take over the kingdom of Israel. And still, this wasn't good enough because several years after, as so happened in this story, a bigger fish than the Assyrians came and ate the smaller fish. The Babylonians. Giving inspiration to another modern age um, group that we'll, we'll hear in a second. Right? So Bonnie M. Sing about our history, which is, you know, they're a German group coming from the Caribbean singing about Jewish history. Kind of odd. So, yeah, we did weep. The Babylonians came, destroyed the temple, and sent us on the first exile. The temple, the first temple, lasted for 410 years, give or take, until the Babylonians come and destroy it. And we are sent off to exile, the first exile of our people. And we did weep by the rivers of Babylon, but not for very long, 42 years. 42 years, a bigger fish arrives on the scene, the Persians. And Cyrus, King Cyrus, actually gives permission to the Jews to go back to their homeland and rebuild the temple. However, these were refugees. So I think that one of the bigger I would say challenges of understanding the history is that we, when we learn history, we only look many times at the big picture. You know, these huge processes that happened. But just think of the people, right? These people were kicked out of their homes, sent to exile many, many miles away, and 42 years later are given permission to go back. But that's a new generation. The people who've seen the temple are now old. The younger generation have never seen it, and they've just been refugees for about one or two generations. It's not enough to actually establish themselves. It's not enough to actually build wealth or be anything of significance. So they go back, and practically, they're immigrants again. Not refugees anymore, but now they're immigrants. And they go back, and they see the temple, which is still in destruction, and they try to rebuild it. However, they have very little means. So they do whatever they can to construct the second temple. And this is Shivatzion, the return to Zion. So we go on. We do build the second temple under King Cyrus, under the Persians. And he shows a, a lot of religious tolerance. But then the next empire comes marching through the Hellenist Empire, the Greeks. So a guy you may have heard about, this is him, Alexander the Great, takes over much of the Middle East, including Jerusalem. And at first, he actually does show a lot of religious tolerance. The Greeks, as long as you paid your taxes and as long as you obeyed their orders, they were fine. But then the Greek kingdom splits into two. And the part that takes over the kingdom of, or not the kingdom anymore, this 
part of the land uh, Judea, over time becomes very, very intolerant of other religions. This is actually considered the first religious persecution documented in human history. So first of all, they try to have people convert into Hellenism, meaning multiple gods, you can't observe, you can't keep kashrut, you can't keep your circumcision rites, you can't, you definitely cannot go to the temple and worship. And this creates a lot of inner conflict because the elites that followed the Greeks had it good. They had actually had it very good. They, they had all their rights. They were given freedoms. They had a lot of money. They belonged to the social and financial elite. And that, at some point, began including the priests, the priests in the temple. However, the ordinary people, they kept Judaism. They wanted to keep worship the way that they knew from before. So this caused a lot of tension until at some point it explodes. When the Greeks completely forbid Jewish worship and the high priests convert to Hellenism, start stealing from the temple to pay bribes to the Greek commissioner, that's it. That's when the Hasmonean revolt starts. And when that happens, we actually rebel against the Greeks, against this huge empire. However, this ended up being in a very fortunate time because the Greeks had a lot of fronts in other places. And that's why the rather small Jewish community that decides to rebel against the Greeks wins. We manage to kick them out. And the Hasmonean dynasty rules for about 77 years. So this is the first time in centuries that Jerusalem has autonomous Jewish rule. That also gives us a new holiday. Hanukkah. That's right. That's what we celebrate. Kicking out the Greeks and a new Jewish rule by the Hasmoneans. So this was the Hasmonean revolt for 77 years. And then a very big player comes in. The Romans. So now what the Romans do is that they take over the land, but they put someone local to represent them, which is king Herod. Herod. That's right. Herod the Builder. So Herod considers himself Jewish, but is not accepted as a Jew by the rest of the population. His mother is an Edomite. So according to Jewish law, his mother is not Jewish, so he's not Jewish. However, his father converted many years ago. His father was an Edomite king, which converted to Judaism. So he sees himself as a Jew. The Romans consider him as a Jew. So they, and coming from, uh, a, a, from uh, royalty, the Romans give him the power to rule over the land. So now the, he's called... He's, best known as Herod the Builder. 
Reason is, many, many of the monumental structures we still see today in Israel are his doings, his makings. So one of the things that he does is that he rebuilds the temple. He actually, so there's a second temple, which is not very impressive. He constructs a temple that is 19 football fields long. Enormous. He fills up, remember we saw Mount Moriah earlier, right? It's a mountain, right? There's a hilltop where the fountain rock is. So he fills the surrounding. He creates an artificial plateau. He builds reinforcement walls all around it. One of which, the western one, we can still see today. That's Herod's construction 2,000 years ago. He builds a huge tower he, to, to control over his, um, his newly renovated temple, which there's a guard there to protect the place. And he, as long as everyone is aligned with him, they can worship, they can do whatever they want, pay your taxes, and be obedient. However, not that long ago, as we said, we had Hasmonean rule. We have Jews ruling over Jews. And he represents the Romans. That's not the guy we want. So the rebellion continues. And the Romans start fighting the rebels. Start from the north, from the Galilee. Wipe out all resistance. And then, little by little, they start moving into Jerusalem. This is already past Herod's time. So now Herod, that had Egyptian architects, he had Roman columns and a Jewish entrepreneurial spirit to build this amazing temple. The Romans, a hundred years later, destroy his own construction. Moving into Jerusalem, fighting the rebels, and destroying the temple. This was a period of extreme inner tension within Jews because there were the zealots. The zealots in Jerusalem were very fierce about wanting independence. No Roman, no Roman rule, no Roman governor, and there were the people who were more liberal. The, the in Hebrew, the metunim. And there, were, there was inner conflict within Jerusalem to the point of killing each other, to the point of actually destroying food storages. Because when the Romans come into Jerusalem, they siege the city until the, the Jewish rebels give in. And this entire period is really described as a lot of sinatrinam, hatred within the Jews. So now, the, um, this, is, this is a scheme of what Herod did. So remember, this is, so before we looked at this same place from about here, this is where the city of David was, right? This is uphill. This is the site of the original temple. This is Mount Moriah. This is the, the fountain rock. This is how much he expands. This is where he built a fort, 
This is the Western Wall that we can still see today. And then, as I've said, Second Temple is destroyed. And then, Second Exile. Jews are being deported from Jerusalem and allowed to go. They're not even allowed into the city. They're allowed to come back one day a year. Tisha B'Av. Ninth of Av. Only one day to mourn the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. This is a pretty nice story that I've just told you about. And the guy that was here before me kept talking about Jews and all the stuff that they did. But he forgot one very important thing in this sequence of events. About during Herod's time, a very important guy comes into play that he completely missed. I'm sure you've heard about him once. Right? So this is also happening during that time. And if we think about this, it's actually the Romans who are pagans, who are very hateful towards him and his followers, are the ones that are responsible to creating a new religion. How is that? So, first of all, let's talk about him for a sec. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. So Jesus is born around, he wasn't born at the year zero. We know that, even though we start counting from the year zero. And first of all, and maybe most importantly, he was Jewish. He never knew that he's starting a new religion. Now, his family lived in Nazareth. However, they go to Bethlehem for a Roman census. And while they're there, he's born. Then they go back to Nazareth, where he's raised, where he grows up, where he becomes more and more scholarly in the Jewish faith. Still Jews, still Jewish. Not only that, that in his older life, he goes back to Jerusalem and he's referred to as a rabbi. He already has followers. He already has people looking up to him because he's so scholarly, but he's a rabbi, nothing else. He goes to the temple, the center of Jewish life. This is obviously before much before the destruction. And he cha chases away the money changers from the temple. Now, we have to keep in mind, the temple is the center of Jewish life, right? There's a city, which is not that big. And the temple, the center of worship, is also the social center. It's the financial center. Everything happens around there. So there are money changers there, and merchants, and everything goes on around there. And this is very disheartening for him because he feels, as a righteous man, that the temple should be a holy place. None of these things belong there. So he goes there, chases away the money changers, obviously not making him a very popular guy. Not only that, he really gets on everybody's nerves. Reason being, he also goes to the priests and scolds them for allowing this to happen. 
So aside from that, so first of all, the Jews don't like him. He has a following. He tells everybody, everybody that they're wrong. And the Romans don't like him either because he, first of all, he's rocking the boat. Aside from that, he's gathering following, followers. Now, they have the Jews in control as much as possible. They don't need anyone else to rock their boat. So then he gets tried, he gets crucified, and then resurrects and goes to heaven. So during Roman period, the early day Christians were severely persecuted. But if you come to think of it, the thing we associate Christianity more than anything else, the cross was actually given to them by the Roman pagans that persecuted them. Because this is how the Romans punished the people they wanted to execute. They would be crucified, right? It's not something that Jesus chose. It wasn't a symbol of his. It became a symbol of his because of the Roman pagans. So this happens for several years. As I've said, Jews are being chased out of Jerusalem. Christians are being heavily persecuted. But in the year 324, Constantine, the Roman emperor, turns to, converts to Christianity. The whole kingdom converts to Christianity, the whole empire. And from now on, we will refer to it as the Byzantine Empire. He actually sends his mother, Helena, to Palestine. He sends her there to discover the origins of Christianity. The first thing that he does, and that's one thing that I forgot to say, which is remember that our theme is that people came, transformed whatever they saw, and made it their own. So once the Romans destroyed the temple on where the Holy of Holies was, they actually build a temple for Jupiter, making, them, making it their own. So now Helena comes in there, Constantine's mother, and she goes there. The first thing she does is orders to, for this uh, temple to be destroyed and builds a church. Then she keeps on going and she asks the locals for, she asks about where the Jesus story took place. And people start pointing her to, in different directions. And finally, she starts digging where they tell her. And she claims to identify the original cross on, upon which Jesus was crucified. This is where Constantine orders to build a church, the most important church in Christianity, the Church of Holy Sepulcher, which still stands today. That's why it's built where it is. So another thing that she does by actually identifying this place and building the church in that place is that she's actually moving the central of worship. She's moving the holiness that up until that point was on Temple Mount. She's moving it to the church, making it their, their own. Some of the same themes repeat. There's a rock on Temple Mount, it's the, the fountain rock. On the church is the rock on which the cross was placed. And there's a sacrifice, right? 
either the binding of Isaac or Jesus giving his life for the betterment of mankind. So this is actually, and this is in the Holy Sepulchre Church today, the two holiest sites for Christians in the, in the whole world. One is Golgotha, where the cross was placed. And the other one, or actually, I'm sorry, I said two, there's three. The other one is the actual sepulcher. This is the rock, or, well, obviously this isn't the rock, but this is the place on which Jesus was laid down after his death and anointed before his burial. And lastly, the grave. How do you know it's the grave? Well, simple. Jesus re resurrected and went to heaven, right? So we know it's the grave because it's empty. Now what happens when there's something of that greater, great of importance where everybody looks up to, where everybody wants a part of? So the thing that ensues is division, right? Because if this is so important for so many people, then everybody wants a piece of it. In the Holy Sepulchre Church today, there are six different churches. The Greek Orthodox, the Armenian Orthodox, the Roman Catholic, the Egyptian Copts, the Ethiopian, and the Assyriacs. Six different churches. Now, everybody wants a piece of the church. Not only that, everyone's afraid that their part would be taken away from them. This led to some major, major logistical difficulties because they can't really decide where's where and what's what and who's who's. To the point, this is the entrance to the Holy Sepulchre Church. Right here, this is where you go in. This is the main facade. Do you see right here, about above these arches, there are two other arches. Do you see this ladder? This ladder has been there for over 150 years. You know why? Because the inside belongs to the Greek Orthodox. And one day, the, one of the Greek Orthodox uh, monks goes out and he wants to clean the outside. And then someone runs out, stops him right there. What are you doing? He says, I'm cleaning the facade. This is our part of the church. No, no, no. The inside is yours. The outside is the Armenians. This ladder has been there from, since the invention of photography. The first photographers that went to Jerusalem to photograph it, the ladder has been there ever since because no one can decide who owns the facade. So they just leave the ladder there. Right? This is from the mid-19th century and onwards. The ladder has always been kept there. Not only that, obviously it's a wooden ladder, so keep in mind, over the years it deteriorated. When it crumbled down, they took it out, put a new wooden ladder there, and they just leave it. Now, because they can't... They basically, I'll, I'll say, I'll, I won't say can't. I'll say they can. They want to keep the status quo, right? Nobody wants to fight anyone. So the key to the church for the past 900 years has been owned, not owned, looked after by two Muslim families. 
They're responsible to open the door in the morning, keep the door throughout the day, and take the key back home at night after they lock it. None of the churches have access to the key. So this has been happening for many, many years now. Now a new player comes into play. So those were great stories that we spoke about. But now there's a new major player that comes in. And the Muslims go in and they conquest the city. They conquer the city in 638. Now, keep in mind, the Muslims don't want to eradicate what was before them because Moses is their prophet. Jesus is their Messiah. But they still need to make it their own. They claim they're more evolved. Now there's Muhammad. He's the new prophet. We're following him. But we're still keeping the old traditions. So Umar, the first caliph that goes into Jerusalem, takes over, actually shows a lot of tolerance to the current inhabitants. When he's invited by the uh, patriarch of the Holy Sepulchre Church to pray with him in the church, he refuses. He refuses because he says, I don't want Muslims to have any claim over the church. He goes away a few yards away and prays there in a place which is today the Omar Mosque, which is right in front of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. So for many, many years, there's a lot of religious tolerance. He actually gives, he writes down the covenant of Omar, which spells out the rights, the religious rights of Jews and Christians in Jerusalem. But now, he still needs to make it his own. So he starts rebuilding the Temple Mount because, according to his belief, this is still the most sacred place. Now, why is that sacred? Because he builds two structures there. The first one, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, built in 679, and then a couple years later, the Dome of the Rock. Why are those built there? So let's start with the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Al-Aqsa in Arabic means the farthest place. According to Quran, Muhammad had a night journey from Mecca to the farthest mosque. Where would that be? It would be right here. That would be a great reason to make this holy site Muslim. So he, create, he builds the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And then, since they still believe that this is the Al-Aqsa Mosque, by the way, at first it was actually very modest build of wood. Only after it was torn down twice by earthquakes was it built of, uh, of stone. So this is the third holiest site to Muslims after Mecca and Medina. Now, the other structure he builds, the Dome of the Rock. So now we know what is the rock it's actually protecting. It's protecting the fountain rock. However, the fountain rock is very much associated with Jewish traditions. This is not what he wants to keep. He respects those. He accepts most of these. But he still needs to make it 
his own. So after this was the Jewish temple, a Roman temple, a Byzantine church, he tears that one down and builds the Dome of the Rock to protect it. And the Dome of the Rock is now being associated with other stories. First, it was the binding of Isaac, right? It's no longer the binding of Isaac. Now it's the binding of Ishmael, right? Abraham's other son, the forefather of Arabs. So now it's the binding of Ishmael, and there's a new story. This is actually the fountain rock. Now, this is a top view. If you look at it from the side, it's tilted. There's a part that's a little, um, that's, that's uh, risen. And the reason for it is that when Muhammad has night, had his night journey, he, started, he went to heaven at the end of it. And the rock started ascending with him until the angel Gabriel came and put his hand on it and the rock remained. But since the rock started levitating, it is now tilted. Then the crusaders arrive. And this is a back and forth between Muslim rule and the Crusaders. For several years, the Crusaders were actually ruthless conquerors, killing many of the Jews and Muslims that they saw on their way, or in Jerusalem. And then finally, after 500 years of Jerusalem exchanging hands, the Ottomans arrived. And the Ottomans also showed a lot of religious tolerance, and are mostly remembered for their monumental wall. The Jerusalem wall, the old city wall that we see today, was built by the emperor, the, not the emperor, the sultan, Suleiman the Magnificent. And that's what he left for us at that time. Throughout this period, there are no Jews. Right? The Jews either have been in exile or were their rights were taken away. But throughout this time in exile, they've always kept Jerusalem at heart. There have been, there's been a prayer, which is a part of the Jewish prayer book that you say in Yom Kippur and uh, Passover, Leshana Haba'ah, for next year in Jerusalem. Jerusalem has always been kept as a part of our longings. So now, at some point, Zionism comes into play. Modern Jews start thinking about going back to Israel, going back to Jerusalem. And the first thing we do is actually we help, we help out the Brits to kick out the Ottomans. And then we start to try to kick out the Brits. And this takes us some time. The British Mandate comes in after World War I instead of the Ottoman rule. And until 48, we finally have our independence. In, 19, in 1948, we do have our independence, but the independence turns immediately into our war of independence. The Brits leave very fast, leaving us fighting the local Arab population and the invading surrounding Arab armies, including Iraq. And at the end of that war, Jerusalem is split. We get to keep West Jerusalem, 
But the old city of Jerusalem, the most important to Jews, is not ours. It's under Jordanian rule. And it's been said that at that time there's a lot of animosity between, obviously, the, the, the Israelis and the Jordanians. However, some places, you know, this, it, we have to keep in mind the war, it, it really was a war, but at some point it ends at a ceasefire and this makeshift fence is erected. Not necessarily immediately a wall. So this, is, this was the border, and there, there are tales of Jordanian and Israeli soldiers sharing a cup of coffee. However, there's also tales of Jordanians and Israelis shooting at each other. And there was this no man's land right outside of the old city walls. This is where, right here, this is where, does someone recognize this? This is where the Mamilla Mall is today. This is the Jaffa Gate, right here. Right? This was no man's land. You couldn't walk here, you couldn't be seen here, you would get shot. But during that time, we actually started developing Jerusalem as a sovereign state that has a capital. So we started developing our capital. So first of all, we have the Knesset, we have the Israeli parliament. We, like any other, like any other country, have a supreme court. These are all being built in West Jerusalem that is ours, that we can actually start making it functional as a capital. And we create the Israel Museum that now holds some of the most magnificent archaeology, writings, exhibits that have to do with our history. So throughout this time, we do build West Jerusalem as our capital until the Six-Day War. And during the Six-Day War, we finally are able to take over East Jerusalem. We go back to the old city. We go back to the Western Wall. We go back to, the, to what used to be the temple. But as we take that over, also I remind you there's this shift because Jerusalem is now also a secular modern capital, and now we have this religious historical part, but that does not come without a cost. And the cost is that we take also East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem up until that point is Jordanian, right? The people living there are not Jordanian, because they don't have a Jordanian passport, they now call themselves Palestinians. They were Arabs that at some point gained a national consciousness, which they, are now, they now call themselves Palestinians, and they were never independent. So they were first, under Jordanian rule, never given a Jordanian passport, and now they're under Israeli rule or if you ask them, under Israeli occupation. So all these neighborhoods, we're now looking at the same neighborhood I told you about before, Silwan, where the city of David is. So the city of David, ancient Jerusalem, is at the heart of a Palestinian neighborhood. And as you can see, a very dense Palestinian neighborhood. Now as a Palestinian, 
you're not given equal rights. Because the, the citizens of East Jerusalem at first refused to acknowledge Jewish rule. They refused to take Jewish ID cards. So that has lasted since. To this day, if you're born in East Jerusalem, you're not a citizen of Israel. You're a resident of Israel. You don't vote. You don't necessarily would have the same rights. You may have your residency revoked under certain rights. Under, I'm sorry, under certain terms. But the Palestinians of East Jerusalem considered the old city, considered Jerusalem theirs as well. If you go in the old markets, in the old city markets, the heart, the beating heart of the old city are the Muslim markets, are in the Muslim quarter. If you go to the Damascus Gate, this is the commercial hub of East Jerusalem. This is where the, the central bus station is going to the West Bank. This is where all the merchants are. And the other thing is that Jerusalem has been expanding to the east. So everything that has been built, remember at first there was a very distinct line between east and west Jerusalem. But ever since, Israel has been building east of there. According to international law, those places are considered settlements. Even though they are a part of Jerusalem, you cannot tell the difference between them and West Jerusalem. They're exactly the same, but they're considered settlements by international law. They're considered settlements by the Palestinian residents who don't see themselves as equal partners in this forced partnership. And now there's, I'm taking you back to where I started, because Christians still play a huge role in Jerusalem, but not from within anymore, because the, the Christian population in Jerusalem is not very big. But in 2018, 61% of all tourists coming to Israel were Christian pilgrims. Do you know how much money that translates into? A lot. Not only that, here in the U.S., we have a huge evangelical lobby that has a lot of political power. Have you heard of, um, uh, I, can't, I can't remember if, if he's a reverend or a priest or what he calls himself, Hagee? Do you know the name, right? Hagee is the guy who pretty much is the head of the evangelical lobby in the US. He's the one that gave the speech in the inauguration of the, um, the US embassy in the opening in Jerusalem. So six months ago, I was in DC, and there was a huge, huge event that the Israeli ambassador gave to the evangelical community, Hagee being the top presenter, the keynote speaker of that. So, yes, thank you. Yes, that's right. That's exactly it. This is a lot of political power that has a lot of influence on your president, which has a lot of influence on our government. 
So which way is that going? This used to be what the US stance was about Jerusalem. This is what it is now. Right now, it's leaning very much this way. What I'd like to end with is now, not as any of these, but as myself. Jerusalem is remarkable in any way. And in a way, it's a microcosm to every conflict you can see in Israel. And when I visit it, when I go there, when I actually speak to the people, I don't think that anyone is interested in this friction continuously. However, as long as the debate remains founded in religion, it's very hard to find solutions. Once it moves from religion to pragmatism, to policy, to negotiation, I feel that it's very, very easy to find solutions. The solutions are there, but the hardships and the stern, the stern um, opinions that you hear are there because every part of the equation feels threatened by the other sides instead of actually coming together and thinking how to make this better. Um, I'll give you a very small example and I'll end with this. In recent years, there has been preaching in Al-Aqsa saying that the Jewish temple has never existed, right? However, in the Quran, it says that this place is referred to as Beit al-Muqaddas. Sounds familiar? Do you know how the temple is called in, in Hebrew? Beit al-Mikdash. In Arabic, Beit al-Muqaddas, written in the Quran. So you don't have to be a genius to realize it's the same thing. Now, if you, if you hear Muslim scholars, they would say that it goes against Quran to deny this. But this is not pragmatism. This is politics. Because the preachers, the imams in the mosques, are afraid of Israel breaching their rights to hold this place, to pray there. So now they're going, there's a backlash, right? And this just goes back and forth the whole time with Jews now wanting to exercise their rights to pray there. Who cares if Jews pray in the Temple Mount? Well, if you pray on the Temple Mount, then the Muslims feel you're taking it away from them. You might say at one point, all right, you don't belong here anymore. This is ours. So again, if we let religion control the debate rather than pragmatism and long-term planning, this is what it will keep looking like. I feel, and I'll, I'll end with this, there are powers, there are people in Israel that are working towards that. And when you actually sit down, and, not, and when I say in Israel, I don't mean just Jewish Israelis. I speak about Muslim Israelis as well. And um, I think we will still live 
to see better days coming out of Jerusalem. That is it. Thank you very much. Given our time, we don't have a ton of time, but let's, and, and folks can yes. leave, of course, you're welcome. But let's take maybe five minutes in case there are any questions. Please. Um, yeah, sorry, I went a little over. We can conclude that with um, a little uh, snapshot of what tonight will entail. Mm-hmm. Sure, so I'll, I'll do that first okay, to kind of uh, entice you to, to, for the evening. So this evening, no religion, no, well, a little bit of history, a tiny bit of politics, but mainly Israel, the land of Israel. So the Israel National Trail is the walking trail that crosses the entire country from the Lebanese border to the Egyptian border, zigzagging throughout the country. I am the first professional photographer to have walked it consecutively. It took me two and a half months, throughout which I took a lot of photos, which I'll be sharing with you, and a lot of videos, which I'll be sharing with you. And I tell about my experiences, but really what I'm telling you about is the land of Israel, the places, the views, the scenery, the people, the minorities along the way, and really what is, what is a different view of looking at Israel rather than this very religious, heavily historical view to modern day, beautiful, and, and very eye-opening, uh, an eye-opening journey. So that's tonight. Lots of, uh, any questions about this presentation? Okay, well, thank you once again. Thank you. Have a great day, everyone. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetemidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.